Good afternoon. It's nice to be here together. First full day of our retreat. And um, we're so lucky to have this weather. It's an amazing sky. And, and I don't know how many of you were, were out walking, but there, there's a sound uh, in the wind in this part of Ontario that is so particular to this place in Ontario. And I don't know if you know the sound that I'm talking about, but it has something to do with those massive trees. <laughs> and um, I spent a little bit of time in this area uh, years ago, so w whenever I'm walking around here, I, I, uh, I have a strong memory from that sound, from that. There's always a little bit of wind here. It's really special. And so as I was saying last night, as I was when I was here last year and walking around, especially uh, along the river, I thought a lot about uh, an essay written in the 13th century in Japan by a teacher that I adore uh, named Dogen. And uh, Dogen really uh, ha hasn't become popular until the 20th century. And uh, his writings went underground for a long time. And so I thought that in the talk this afternoon, I would introduce you a little bit to Dogen uh, and some of the lines um, from this uh, essay that he wrote and, and why I think it's significant to, to our practice and, and our lives. And. Um, I've always felt that this essay is kind of like a love letter to meditators, uh, kind of a, a way of encouraging us uh, to continue practice. And like any good love letter, uh, it's tender and also it, it's sharp. <laughs> so it also cuts in uh, to places where there's rigidity in our hearts, in our bodies, in our minds. And I hope that as, as we explore the text a little bit, and we only have, you know, a couple days to do this, that uh, th this spirit will come alive a little bit. Because if you've read the text, it's a little dense. <laughs> and I'm sure that uh, Janet had to go to the waiting list once we sent that email out. <laughs> So Dogen was born in 1200, and he lived for the first half of the 13th century. Uh, he was born in Kyoto, which at the time was the capital of Japan. And he was born into a family that was very involved in political life in Kyoto, which at the time was very troubled. Uh, the people wanted the imperial family to, to run things, 
um, there was a lot of uh, uh, passion in Kyoto at the time in politics, but not the good kind of passion. And um, when Dogen was three years old, his mother died. His mother passed away when he was three. And then five years later, when he turned eight, his father passed away. So I don't know how many of you have lost a parent uh, at a young age, um, but losing both parents uh, by the time you're eight years old um, is, is a pretty traumatic um, loss. And so when Dogen is about 10 years old, all he can think about is impermanence. You see this in young kids when they lose a parent. They uh, really feel change. They really feel impermanence. And so this, this kind of tortured Dogen. And you can imagine uh, how it could torture him. Because it wasn't just impermanence as a philosophy, but what it's like to love the people closest to you and then also uh, have to lose them um, is, is tragic and shocking. And so Dogen was expected to go into politics and um, he wanted nothing to do with uh, what his family was involved in. All he wanted to do was understand why things change in a way that causes so much pain. Maybe you could translate that as, you know, how do you live? How, how do you live? It's kind of a vow in a way, you know? Like, like I think to get up in the morning in a way, it's, you kind of have a vow. This kind of understanding that you're going to participate in life. And we all maybe have had times in our lives where that vow's just not there. You know, you wake up in the morning and, and there's kind of despair. You know, things are changing. What does it matter what I do? Uh, anything I love, I'm going, and this is the Buddha's great insight, you know, that, that everything we love, um, we're going to have to be separated from. And so out of resistance, what we want to do is just then not get involved. Has anyone ever tried not getting involved? <laughs> yeah. So Dogen goes to a monastery and he begins studying and is ordained as a Buddhist monk at 13 years old. And after almost 10 years, um, he's unsatisfied with the practice and he wants to go to the source of the practice, which he believes at that time is in China. And you see this a lot, right? Pe people are practicing in North America. No way, this isn't the source. I've got to go to Burma. I've got to go to Thailand. Got to go to India. Um, so at the time, to go to China was very dangerous, um, and he actually traveled by boat and went. To, imagine traveling to China by boat from Japan in the 13th century is <laughs> a dangerous undertaking. And he goes and he practices in China, and it's in China that he has an uh, an enormous awakening. He's sitting in the monastery late at night 
in sitting meditation, just like you're doing. And the teacher is walking through the room to look carefully at people's posture. And the person beside him is falling asleep. Have you ever had this experience? (laughs) I call it the monk's dance. It goes like this. So the person beside him is falling asleep, and the teacher says to the person next to him, drop away body and mind. Body and mind drop away. And Dogen hears this, and he gets it. Drop away body and mind. So this was a, this is just a really simple instruction to someone who's falling asleep. And this is a good lesson, actually, during the question and answer period, is to really pay attention to other students' difficulties. Because <laughs> sometimes that's where you get insight. So Dogen has this realization from the teacher giving instruction to someone else. And the teacher's instruction was, this, this student's tired, and he's saying, you know, drop away your idea of tired. Drop away body and mind. It doesn't mean don't pay attention to body and mind. It means let go of your ideas about your body. Let go of what you think of as your mind. And just open up to the experience. And sometimes you have to hear this over and over and over and over. And this one particular night, Dogen gets it. And so he gets up and he follows his teacher to the teacher's quarters and says, I've dropped away body and mind. And then the teacher gives him permission to to leave. The teacher can feel that Dogen gets it. So Dogen leaves China and he goes back to Japan with enthusiasm for practice. And he settles in Kyoto, uh, but it doesn't last long. He tries to go practice in Kyoto, but actually he's, he, every year he starts going further and further away from Kyoto. And uh, by the time he's 40, he wants nothing to do with city life. He wants nothing to do with politics. And he actually writes a letter to a friend saying, the best thing you can do for your practice is not get involved with any politicians. <laughs> and he's in his 40s and he's doing his best writing. Now that's interesting because at that time in Japan, uh, part of Zen practice was to just sit. And so it was a time where Zen teachers and Zen practitioners weren't writing much. And if they were expressing themselves at all, it was through calligraphy, it was through other arts, but not through writing. But Dogen was writing. And Dogen came across a famous Chinese poem at the time that really inspired him to write this text called Mountains and Rivers. So I thought I would just read this read this poem. Well, actually, before I read the poem, build up to it first. Um, Just something about how Dogen saw meditation practice. Um, Dogen had this idea that people who were practicing meditation had it all backwards. And his notion was that you don't sit to get enlightened. You sit because you're enlightened. This was a really deep insight that he had. That sitting is actually an expression of enlightenment. 
as opposed to this idea that you're sitting to get somewhere. And he thought this idea of practicing to get somewhere is exactly what obscures uh, being awake. It's a little bit like uh, these flowers or this Buddha. Sometimes when I look at an altar, the Buddha also looks like flowers. If you look at the Buddha's posture, the Buddha is like a flower. He, he just sits there and offers himself. Like the flowers are here, just pouring themselves out. And I think Dogen would have thought about the sitting meditation posture as just sitting as an offering. Exactly the same way these flowers are an offering. How can your sitting meditation practice just be an offering? And I think for most of us when we sit, we're sitting because we want to get something. You know, or get rid of something. If I just stop thinking about him, everything will be okay. You know? <laughs> so Dogen uses two words uh, to describe meditation. The fr- and these are uh, Japanese. The first word is shinsetsu, which is a compound character. And it actually means as close as a parent. And someone in our Sangha in Toronto who's Japanese told me that this is also the word that's used for companionship. So this this idea of of meditation practice is being in the same proximity to what's arising as a parent. It's kind kind of beautiful, I think. The other word he uses is another compound character, which is mitsu. Uh, when I looked up the word mitsu in just a standard dictionary, here, here are the definitions. Um, like tightly woven cloth. To weave a secret being so close that it can't be known. And the last one was my favorite. A secret because it's so close. Does everybody know this? When when you're so intimate with something, it's so close. It's not exactly you, and it's not exactly separate from you. And so Dogen's whole idea of meditation practice is that it's a practice of intimacy. It's a practice of mitsu. It's a practice of being so close that there's no separation. So he saw meditation as a practice of intimacy. Um, Because what is closer to us than our life? There's nothing closer to you than your life. And what is your life? It's this. It's the light in this room. It's, It's being here at this time. It's the river. It's the sound of being here. The trouble of being here. It's difficult to be here. And it's so joyful when you're here, actually here. So it's 1240. Dogen is in Kyoto. And uh, he's just outside Kyoto, rather. And um, he's inspired by a poem, a Chinese poem by Su Dong Po. Some of you may have heard this poem. I'll just read it. Um, The sound of the stream. Buddha's long, broad tongue. The form of the mountains. Can you see the mountain, by the way? I don't know if you can see. 
There's one right across from the river. The form of the mountains, his pure body, 10,000 verses through the night. In the morning, how will I explain any of this to others? So that needs a little bit of unpacking. The sound of the stream, Buddha's long, broad tongue. It's a very interesting notion. So, so, so you have to picture Su Dong Po. He's in some monastery in China. Most of the monasteries at that time are built along rivers, mountain rivers. So he's probably in his room at nighttime, listening to the river. And he has this thought that the sound of the stream is the Buddha's tongue. So the stream coming out of the mountain is Buddha's tongue, and the mountain is the Buddha's body. And all night, the sound of the stream is 10,000 verses. So all the suttas, all the sutras, all the Buddha's teachings are just the sound of the stream. So it's not just that the stream is like a metaphor for the Buddha's tongue, but actually the sound of the stream, if you listen to it, has in it all of the Buddha's teachings. And then he, he sort of comes out of it, and I love the last sentence, in the morning, how will I explain any of this <laughs> to others? Has anyone ever had that thought? You, you kind of have this insight. You're walking along the river. There's a, most of our insights are actually not when we're sitting. right? The sitting just prepares it, and it's usually you know getting up or like Ananda, you know, putting your head down on the pillow. Um, in the morning, how will I explain any of this? So Dogen loves this poem. And this poem stands in the background of his essay called Mountains and Rivers. And so Dogen, right off the bat in the title, he, 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 he has a, a flip or a koan inside the title, which is it's the Mountains and Rivers Sutra which doesn't come across as well in, in English, um, Sansu Kyo. So it, it mean, what, it, what this means is that the mountains and rivers are the sutra. So usually immediately we think, oh, this is a sutra. Sutra is where you get the English word suture, right, to, to tie something together, um, which is usually what, what we refer to when we refer to a text or a philosophical teaching as a sutra. It's, it, it's, it's tying us together. And so Dogen is saying the mountains and the rivers are the sutra. That's the teaching. The teaching of mountains and rivers. It's really beautiful. It's kind of a radical thing to say in monastic culture at the time. But actually, if you want the real teachings, you need to go to mountains and rivers. But you can't get the teaching from the mountain or the river unless you can see the mountain and river in a way where you can hear the teaching. Um, so, if you look out in the wilderness here, there's snow, and then underneath the snow, there's a river. And, and the river is just singing sutra, sutra music. But from here, you can't tell there's a river. 
because it's frozen over. But we can intuit that underneath all that frozen water, there's this flowing river. But as soon as you say flowing river, you have an, usually like a cliche, like, oh, there's that river over there that's flowing. It's separate from me. And there's that mountain that's timeless and hard over there on the other side of the river, also, you know, laying there, separate from me. And so Dogen wants to break all this down. So he starts by saying, mountains and waters right now actualize the ancient Buddha expression. So he's saying, right now, the mountain is actualizing the Buddha's teaching. Right now, the water is actualizing, is expressing the Buddha's teaching. Then he says, mountains uh, examine in detail the characteristic of mountains walking. Mountains walking is just like human, human walking. Do not doubt mountains walking, even though it doesn't look the same as human walking. He has a good sense of humor. Some of you probably may not get the sense of humor. So what he's saying here is, if you look really if you look at a mountain, we all get stuck in conventional views. And this has to do with language, has to do with the way we perceive things. That I'm the subject over here, and over there there's a mountain. And Dogen's saying, but that's not examining things in detail. If you look closely at a mountain, a mountain's actually walking. So we think of mountains as the most permanent thing. What's more permanent than a mountain? But if you actually look at a mountain, especially uh, uh, in this season, it, it's different every day. Every day the cap of snow changes because of the sun and because of precipitation and the wind. Um, if you look at a mountain over years, tree line changes. But if you go into the mountains and you walk, you'll notice that the mountains are crumbling. If you walk up a path, it feels solid, but when you look closely, actually the mountain's crumbling. I don't know if anyone here got stuck on the river uh, bank at all. But if you walk a certain distance, you can't go in. The only way you can get back up is you have to climb up this steep embankment. And when you climb up, you, you, you get about five feet and then you slip down again, you know. So, so what we think of as a mountain, this kind of solid earth, is actually walking. So mountains are walking. And if you look in detail at mountains, you'll see that their characteristic is walking. And then Dogen says, and if you don't understand that, then you don't understand your own walking. Which is in another way he's saying, and if you don't understand mountains walking, then you don't understand your life. Because we think that our life is made up of some kind of flow that's in between all of these stiff, solid, 
permanent objects. My career is linear. I have a career and there are certain points that mark its movement forward in time. Right? Or I have, a, I have a best friend who I love. I have a house. It has a foundation. And then, you know, slowly as we start to get thrown around and, and banged up a little in our life, we start to realize that the things that we thought were so solid, were, the things that we thought were mountains, are, are actually walking. And what would it be if I could live like that? that I could examine my life in more detail, starting with the cushion. So I sit here on this cushion and follow the breathing, and then the mind goes into patterns. And I don't know if you notice, but there's not so many patterns. Usually there's like five or six patterns, and you'll just plug any content into those patterns. And then it starts to feel like some of those patterns are just fixed. It's just the way it is. And then you're not looking close enough. I, I noticed this, I used to work a lot with people who were in chronic pain. And when someone's in chronic pain, and you ask them to talk about their pain, the first thing they'll tell you is that it's fixed. And then with a little bit of practice, they'll start to realize, oh, actually the pain gets better sometimes of the day. Or it moves from my wrist to my elbow, and then it goes down into my legs, and then in the afternoon it's in the spine, and then by evening it's all in the wrist again. Yeah. Or maybe we have old trauma, or grief, or you know, sometimes we've been wounded in ways, like I think, that sometimes we have a little bit of an idealistic notion of healing. You know, That like one day, everything that's unconscious is going to be conscious. <laughs> and, you know, I think that if your mother dies when you're three, and your father dies when you're eight, that there's a wound there that doesn't necessarily get healed. You know? and, and that wound, actually, uh, if we don't give attention to it, starts to become fixed. And it starts to haunt us. Because we just think of it as a mountain in the past. You see, But Dogen's saying, what you're learning on the meditation cushion is that when you really start to open up to what you think of as fixed, then you see that it's walking, actually. It's in time. Everything's in time. Everything's flowing, including the mountains. And everything that's flowing is also timeless, is also like a mountain, because it's flowing forever, before time. It's flowing. Where in your life do you have 
situations and ideas about those situations that you think are fixed and solid. Because if you think that what you think is solid, then you're setting yourself up. Then that will become a time bomb. And you can only live, and you can also only die, when you really open up out of this rigidity. And this is what we're seeing in the meditation practice. And you know this already, because if you sit and your mind goes into a rigid pattern and you don't come back to the breath, then you start fixating in that pattern and ruminating. And then the bell rings and you don't know where you are. Was Michael giving instruction that time, or was that? <laughs> One way that I like to practice this is during the day, I like to look at things as just a moment in time. So you can look at your car as just a moment in time. You can look at the river as just a moment in time. You can look at your hand as a moment in time. You can feel the pain in the knee as just a moment in time. You can look at those you love as just a moment at this time. And you can look at those who you hate. Does anybody here have an enemy? No, maybe not. In Toronto, <laughs> most people have a nemesis. Okay? I know it that doesn't happen so much. The closer you go to Quebec, the fewer enemies there are. Um, but if there's some, does anyone have someone in their life who just makes everything difficult? Aside from Stephen Harper? <laughs> um, to, to really just see that as a moment in time. And when I say see, I don't mean like philosophy. You know, where it's like, oh, I have this idea that everything's a moment in time. No, actually to, to, to feel your connectedness and, and this love for what you're engaged in. This love can only happen when you see things as moments in time. Because otherwise what you think of as devotion actually a kind of clinging because you want it to be something that's continuing and usually have an idea of how it's going to continue don't we do this we do this to kids right such strong ideas about how they should be and they need us to have ideas about how they should be because it opens potential up we may see things they can't see. But yet, when we hold on to those ideas, we just make everyone suffer. And the people who suffer the most are us. <laughs> so Dogen's saying, please, look closely at mountains. They're walking. Mountains are walking. 
which is a way of saying look closely at your life because you're dying and there's nothing worse than seeing somebody who's dying and I mean literally dying to be with somebody who's dying who can't get into the dying place you ever been with somebody who's dying and they can't enter the process of dying but this strange thing is is that to actually be in the dying place is to be in the living place so Dogen's saying like if you have this idea that there's dying and then there's death then actually that's just like saying those are mountains over there actually to really be in the dying place there's no dying there's living these moments these are moments in time and it's interesting because when you're with someone who's dying usually it's like all the family going they're dying they're dying and if the person you know is, is at ease they don't talk so much about the, the death moment they're just you know watching Oprah or whatever you know? someone told me recently that most people die watching Oprah <laughs> it sounds silly but actually for those of you who spend time in hospitals uh, a lot of people die watching game shows you know There's a story where a student asks a teacher, um, isn't, isn't dying just like an ice cube melting and turning into water again? That's a good metaphor, isn't it? Isn't dying just like a block of ice melting and turning into water again? And the teacher says, no. <laughs> it's just water becoming water. It's just water becoming water. Why do you think your life is an ice cube? It's like thinking that your life is fixed. There's another story about a, a student who goes with his teacher to a funeral. And uh, this is a funny one. And, and the, the, the teacher walks by the casket and knocks on it. Do you imagine this? Just like knocks on the casket and then turns to the student and says, is he living or dying? And the student's just puzzled. So the teacher asks again, alive or dead? And the student says, I can't say. And then the teacher's happy. It's the, it's the answer the teacher wants. You know, it's, it's an interesting thing when you're with somebody who dies. Have most of you here been, been with someone when they die? You know, 
it's just the strangest thing. They're alive, and then they're not alive anymore. And actually, it's not so different. So conceptually, it's like, oh, they're gone. You know? But there's some strangeness in it, where also you walk out of the <coughs> hospital, and, and the cars are driving down the street. Uh, everything is going on. And so we need to look more closely at these ideas we have about our lives. And part of meditation practice, and this is what we call insight, is when you drop into that place underneath how you think things are supposed to go. And you, you feel the contour of your life. And usually something happens where it just shifts how you see your life. You actually shift and you see your life or the situation of your life in a different way. And this is not something you can get to with thinking. You can't think your way there. You have to, to drop into it. And so this is what Dogen's saying. Then Dogen says, all the Buddha ancestors, so they're saying all the Buddhas ever in time, so every teacher ever, every Buddha, their words are just pointing to walking. It's kind of nice, huh? If you, if you really want to understand all of the Buddha's teachings, they're, they're all pointing to the same thing, which is walking. He's basically, he's trying to talk about the Buddha's teachings without saying, you know, this is impermanence or like the technical language that we always hear. And so he's using this really, this kind of phrase, walking. That, that what the Buddha was trying to point at was walking. This is a fundamental understanding. Penetrate these words. Because green mountains walk, they are permanent. <laughs> he just flipped it. Because green mountains walk, and in the translation I sent you, it was blue mountains. And I, I looked this up, because this was so puzzling to me. How can a translator be so off? And it turns out that in, in Chinese, at the time, there were no two, uh, green and blue were the same word. So I have to do a little more research. I found this really fascinating. Green and blue were the same word. It's really interesting. Anyway. Um, because green mountains walk, they're permanent. Although they walk more swiftly than the wind, someone in the mountains does not notice or understand it. In the mountains means the blossoming of the entire world. People outside the mountains don't notice or understand the mountains walking. If you doubt mountains walking, you do not know your own walking. It is not that you don't walk, but that you don't know or understand your walking. So some people might read this and go, what is he talking? Why doesn't he just say it? You know? <laughs> Did anybody have this thought when they read it? Why doesn't he just say what he means? You know? And I had that thought too. But actually, 
in the thought, why don't you just say what you mean, there's an assumption that language can actually accurately and in a non-misleading way get intimate with your life. There's an assumption that you can really say what's closest to you. And I think what Dogen's doing is he's trying to use words to talk about what's closest to him, but to do it, he can't use words the way we normally use words. So he's not going to say the Buddha taught impermanence. Because if he says the Buddha taught impermanence, he's not actualizing the teaching. He's not showing the teaching. It's not spontaneous. Hmm? So, he's saying, um, when someone in the mountains walks, they don't notice or understand it. In other words, when you're fully in your life, you don't know it. You don't see it. You're only in your life with an idea about it when you're not really in it. Have you ever had this experience? It's like you're at a party. I don't know if any of you go to parties, but <laughs> you go to a party, it, it stops after, you start meditating and it's the end of parties. <laughs> um, basically, if you meditate, your life will be ruined. <laughs> um, we won't, we'll talk about that on Sunday. Um, but basically, there's these things called parties. You go to a party, and you're at a, let's say it's your party. You have a party, and you invite everyone to your party. And then you're having a lot of fun, and then you have this idea that comes in. I'm having a lot of fun. You ever had this experience? Or this is really fun. And then it just stains. The whole, the whole thing, and then and then the whole experience starts to feel kind of tacky, yeah, because you're feeling like you should have have fun, and kids never do this, only adults do this. I remember uh, not long ago taking a taxi from Mon downtown in Montreal to the airport. After spending, I, I took my son to Montreal for a few days. And we had a really fun time together. And so we're on our way home to the airport, and he's playing with some comic book that he got, folding it in a certain way. And I, I said to him, wasn't that fun? <laughs> wasn't that weekend really fun? And he wasn't answering me. He was just, you know, doing, he was in time, you know, playing with what he was playing with. And I said, why don't you answer? Like, wasn't it a really good time? You know? <laughs> As if you could take this whole weekend and like put a box around it and say it was fun or it wasn't fun. And you can only do this because of language, actually. You see? And then that's not examining your life. So Dogen's saying here something really interesting is that when you're totally in your life, you don't see it. You don't see it. And we all know this experience. When you're meditating and you really release the palate and you actually listen to the instruction. <laughs> and, and, and there's just experience, but there's no one having the experience. 
And then the mind comes in and goes, whoa, that was so still. That was really amazing. I'm so spiritual. Maybe I'm a Buddhist now, actually. And uh, and I want to make that happen again, you know. I I remember this, that... I remember this being on a retreat in Massachusetts and 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 uh, going out to walk and walking towards this this wooden building I remember seeing the wooden building and having the experience of not having any thoughts in my mind I'd never had this experience before just there was nothing there and then I remember having the thought there's nothing there and then the, the feeling of nothing is just gone, you know? And then the next two years of meditating were horrible because every time I went on a retreat or tried to sit by myself, I just wanted that to happen again, right? So the mind is actually kind of like a tourist and it's constantly just trying to take pictures of everything. So you have an experience and the mind just wants to take a picture of it as if that's the experience, right? You want to frame it somehow. But then that's not the experience. So this is what Dogen's getting at. When you're, when you're fully walking in the mountains, you don't know it. They're not even mountains. It's not even your life. Because hmm? it's not you. Hmm? So Dogen's trying to push your understanding a little bit. See if we can cover a tiny bit more before the end of this. Skip ahead. Oh, in the mountains means the blossoming or the blooming of the entire world. We skipped that sentence. Um, when you're in your life, the, the world is, is blooming. The world is blossoming. Your life is blossoming. So if we tie that into how we started the talk this afternoon, you know, I said, you know, in Dogen's way of seeing meditation as intimacy, he inverts this idea that meditation is a practice to get somewhere. And, you know, on retreats, this is a short retreat, so I'm not doing interviews. But on a, on a long retreat, I do interviews. Some of you have had interviews with me. And, and in the interview, I sometimes feel like my only job is to try and, like, toss out people's ideas of what's happening. Because then we're not with what's happening. We're with our ideas about what's happening. Like when fear comes up, Right? Fear is usually imagining what's going to happen. I'm worried I'm going to fall apart. Are you falling apart? No. And then to really examine that. And then you're walking. And then your meditation practice is walking. And then the mountains are walking. So, we're not practicing to get enlightened. We're practicing as an offering, as a blossoming. Dogen says blooming, as a blooming, as an offering. 
so that instead of meditating to get nirvana, we're, we're practicing to appreciate our life. To talk about meditation as intimacy means to, to practice in a way where you can appreciate your life. Your woundedness, your scars, the way your life is so beautiful and the way it's a total catastrophe. Nothing worked out. But imagine if it did. Imagine if you could plan. I had this thought experiment. I was doing this on an airplane uh, last month, um, being stuck for a while on an airplane. Um, meditators just make up thought experiments. And the thought experiment was, imagine if you could plan out your thoughts for the next 10 minutes. And then you'd know where you were going. You just could plan out all the thoughts. This is my idea. It's like, if the mind really likes to cling and control things, then try it. Like, actually, and you can't do it. You can't do it. So Dogen's saying, because of that, everything's walking. How do you live your life like this? Moment to moment. So when you're sitting, everything you experience is just a moment in time. So then you experience the mountain, walking and then things become a little lighter because there's less craving less clinging less contraction more generous gratitude appreciation even just to appreciate this room and the people here it's amazing practicing with other people you know, how, how, how much it supports us to be in a room with other people also who are trying, also who want to wake up. And then our, our problems are not so personal. You know. so, so this is, uh, hopefully has been an introduction to, to Dogen's teaching. I hope it's applicable to your meditation practice. This practice of expressing your enlightenment. This practice of appreciating your life. Maybe another way of saying that is just give yourself a break. <laughs> Forgive yourself. We're so annoying to ourselves. <laughs> But just, just to forgive yourself. You know, the word forgive is interesting. It's uh, originally in English, it was for to give. And, and the word in Pali for forgive is dana. So how really to give? To give yourself. To devote yourself each moment to whatever's arising. And then you can appreciate your life. Then everything's walking. It's not so 
context. So this next period can be used for walking meditation. If anybody here has uh, questions about practice that they'd like to discuss, we can have a group discussion in here uh, for anybody that would like to to, um, um, express any, any questions or something that's arising in their practice that they they need to be that needs to be explored. Otherwise, enjoy walking. 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 Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.